Well, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We've been looking at this theme of Advent. Advent meaning Jesus is coming, his dawning. God adding to himself flesh, becoming a human and walking and living amongst us. We've been looking at this theme and we've been seeing, okay, what does this coming of Jesus prepare us for? Right, like we've been looking at things like hope and healing, holiness, favor, grace, faith. We looked at proclamation and praise last year. We've looked at abstract concepts. Well, this morning we're gonna look at something else. We're gonna just see how Advent prepares us for the Messiah, how it prepares us for the person himself who embodies those things, who gives us those things. In particular this morning, we will see how Jesus, the Messiah, comes in power and comes in humility and what that means for our lives. Sound good? There we go, there we go. So let's turn to Luke chapter two. I'm gonna read the first seven verses, beginning in verse one. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Luke chapter two, verse one. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Raise your, story if you, raise your hand if you've heard this story before. Friends, this is still God's holy word. It is his speech to you. It is given to you in love and for your good. Here's how we're going to break this down this morning. There's just two points we're going to make, two things we're going to learn, two things we're going to unpack, and it's this. It's first, the Messiah's timing means that he's come in power. The timing of his coming shows that he's coming in power. The second thing we're going to see is that the Messiah's manger means he's come in humility. So timing, power, manger, humility, that's where we're going. That's what we're doing. Let's go ahead and let's hop into this first point, that the Messiah's timing means that he comes in power. Go with me to verse 1. Let's look at verse 1. Let's look at a name there in verse 1. Let's start with Caesar Augustus. How many of you have ever heard of Augustus, Augustus Caesar, Caesar Augustus? Yeah, one of the most powerful men to ever live. Clearly the most powerful man in his day, but here's the thing. If you lined up all of humanity from most powerful to least powerful, pretty much every historian would put Caesar Augustus in the top 10 of all time. The man was able to do what his great uncle, Julius Caesar, was not able to do, and that's convert Rome from a republic into an empire. Augustus is the first emperor of Rome. He ruled over a land that stretched from Britain in the north to Egypt in the south, Spain in the west, to modern-day Iraq to the east. Even Hitler was not able to conquer such territory. This man was powerful. He owned the most land in Rome. He had the most money in Rome, and it was not even close. He also commanded the army. 
right? When you've got the land, when you've got the money, when you've got the army, you're in charge, right? There you go. Here's the thing. This man is powerful, but we also see his, powerful in ver- his power in verse 1. Let's go back there. Look with me at how a decree went out that what? All the known world, <laughs> all the Roman world should be registered. This man had the, had the power, had the clout to tell people what to do and to expect them to obey. And that's certainly going to play out in verses 2, 3, and 4, right? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. First, we've got to look at this. What does it mean that the people had to be registered? Well, in those days, being registered was like us taking a census. You need to know how many people you have so you know how many taxes to charge. It's tax season. And if you, didn't like, if you don't like taxes now, you would not have liked taxes back then. Why? Because back then you couldn't like print out, sign, and scan, and then send off your tax forms. You could not mail them in. You could not call a 1-800 number, get the IRS, and hope and pray it's really the IRS and not an imposter, right, before you give them your social security number. What you had to do then was you actually had to go to your ancestral homeland and be registered there, right? How many of you would have to go back to Illinois? Right? You don't want to raise your hand. It's like, boo, Illinois. We left that, right? We're here now. I would have to go back to Florida, which in April, I wouldn't mind, right? I kind of went on that one. Here's the thing. As Augustus has people sent back to their homeland, look at the power. In verse 2, his governor, his subordinate, makes sure it happens in the region that Joseph and Mary belong to. They actually obey. They go and they do this with other people. It looks like Augustus Caesar is moving Mary and Joseph back to Bethlehem. It looks like he's calling the shots, right? Do you see this? Does this make sense? He gives an order, they've got to do it, right? Even though he doesn't know them. It's like Augustus has a checkerboard and he's moving the red pieces and the black pieces. And where do Mary and Joseph wind up? They wind up in Bethlehem. But is Caesar really and truly calling the shots? Is he really the one who's in charge? I'm going to submit to you that no, he's not. Our Lord God is the one who really is in charge. He is the one who is really calling the shots. And let me prove that to you. Let's bring up Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Let's look at an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Do you see that? This is a prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and this was written 700 to 750 years before Augustus gave his decree. Anybody get this? Like, raise your hand. Like, do you see this? This is important, y'all. This is important. Why? Because it looks like Augustus is moving checkers on a checkerboard, but what's really happening? The Lord God is moving Augustus as a pawn on his chessboard, making sure his plan comes to fruition. The Lord God is more powerful than one of the most powerful men to ever live. 
Augustus is God's agent fulfilling his plan. And this is really good news. How is this good news for you and for me? Let's break this down. How is this good news? If God is really in charge, if he's really more powerful than the greatest emperor of all of Roman history, right? Then his Messiah, this little baby Jesus, who is his son, is also coming in power. You can rest in the fact that if God will align, if God will move events in his son's life to make sure he's where he needs to be at the right time, then when you have faith in God's son, Jesus Christ, when you become a son of God, when you become a daughter of God, does God not do the same for you? Do you see that? This is remarkable. This is really good news. In fact, an old British pastor, a man named J.C. Ryle, says it so well. Let's bring up his quote. He says this, when you're a Christian, the heart of a believer should take comfort in recalling God's government of the world. A true Christian should never be moved or disquieted by the conduct of the rulers of the earth. That is true today, isn't it? I don't care if you're a Democrat who didn't like Trump. I don't care if you're a Republican who doesn't like uh, Biden, right? It's true today. J.C. Ryle continues, he should see with the eye of faith a hand ruling over all that they do to the praise and the glory of God. Are you here and are you a Christian? Here's your takeaway. What do I take away? What's my application point? What does this mean for me? Here's your takeaway. It's this. As you enter into the holiday season, as you enter into 2022, take heart. Take heart. Take heart. Bring more of this perspective into your life. Take heart, right? As you're there in the lows, he's moving, he's working, he's active. As you're there in the highs, he's moving, he's working, he's active. As you're moving from the high to the low or the low to the high, he's moving, he's active in your life. The holiday seasons can be marked by strife, can't they? Husbands, wives, we get into bad arguments, right? Take heart. He's not just in charge of your life, he's in charge of your spouse's life. Even in the midst, even in the aftermath of the bad argument, he's still working, right? Like your argument does not compare to the power of Augustus Caesar. And if God can trump Augustus Caesar's power, he can trump the power of bad feelings after an argument. Amen? And, and, let's have fun. Let's talk about in-laws, right? When your in-laws come over and take over your living room, take over your remote control, take over your kitchen, which does not happen in the Rogers family at all, <laughs> right? I got to say that. He is still in charge. He is still in control. He is shaping you. He is teaching you. He is using his power to orchestrate events. So you have opportunities to grow and be more like Jesus. When you have this perspective and you take it into the home place, when you have this perspective and you take it into the workplace, what happens in your life? You become more patient. Why? I don't need to be in control. He is, and he does a better job. He's been doing it for the better part of 2,000, no, 4,000, no, I don't know how many thousands of years, right? You are more patient. You are kinder. You're gentler. You don't have to have your way. Like I'm preaching to myself right here, right? Yes, yes, you don't have to have your way. Do you see how this changes you? Do you see how this works in you? Do you see how this produces the fruit in you that makes you more like Jesus? So take heart. 
Take the perspective that the Messiah has come in power and that power is operative in your life when you trust, rest, and look to him. Amen, Grace? Let's try that again. That's really good news. I don't think you're feeling it. Amen, Grace. There we go. There we go. But he's not just coming in power. He doesn't just come in power. He comes in humility. He comes in humility. Let's stop right here. How many of you have ever heard a sermon on manger, Jesus, and humility? Raise your hands. Like, right, like all of us, right? Here's my concern in saying that the Messiah comes in humility. It's that it's too familiar for you. We're just going to gloss over it. Yeah, 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 I heard this one before. No, 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 no. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Do you know the majesty of Jesus? Do you know the majesty of Jesus? He's there in Genesis 1-1. He's there at the end of Revelation. Do you know the majesty of the baby lying in the manger? We can preach about the manger and how humble Jesus is, and I'm gonna do that in a minute. But do you have the backdrop of all that Jesus is so that as the manger sits in the foreground, you see the majesty in the background landing in that baby? Let's look at that. Let's look at that. Let's look at our text. Let's look at two clues in our text. Go with me to verse four. Look at verse four. Do you see how Joseph is from the lineage of? Good. Thank you. David. David. Do you see how Joseph is from the lineage of David? What does that mean for Jesus? He's from the line of David. Why is that important? The line of David. If David was your ancestor, that was the line that the true kings of Israel come from. Jesus has royal blood. Okay, but where is he on, what do they call it, the order of succession, right? Where you know it's like William, then Harry, well, is it Harry, right? You all know what I'm talking about? Where is Jesus on the line of succession? Look at verse seven. Jesus is Mary's what? Secondborn? We like crowd participation here at Grace, right? Like charismatics with seatbelts, all right? He is the firstborn. We love charismatics, all right? Not making fun of y'all, we used to be one. All right, so here we go, firstborn. He is the firstborn. He is first in line. He is the royal heir. He is the king of Israel. He is the rightful king of Israel. Do you see that? He has majesty to his name. But what does the first act, what is the first act of the true king of Israel? It's to hold his first court, not surrounded by advisors, not surrounded by counselors. He's surrounded by animals, droppings, barn smells, right? He does not come to the loud sound of trumpets and drums. He comes and he's surrounded by the sounds of the neighing of horses, the braying of donkeys, the clucking of chickens. This is humility, This is humility. There's the true king of Israel lying in the manger. He came and he did that and he did it for you. The king of Israel is a king you can come to. He's that approachable. But he's not just the king of Israel. What else is he? He is the God of creation. He's the God of creation. Sometimes I think we lose sight of or we've never been taught that Jesus was present and active when the world was created. If you want to study it this afternoon, go to John chapter 1, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 
Go to Hebrews chapter one. You can read all about it. We're gonna look at perhaps the most clear and concise verse in all of the New Testament. Colossians chapter one, verse 16. Let's look at this now. What does it say? For by him, who's him? Jesus, we're getting there. All things were created in heaven and where? On earth, on earth. He is the God of all creation. Take that, bookmark it. Hang it, hang it over here. He's the God of all creation, right? It's clear. Let's look at creation in Job 38. Let's go to the Old Testament. Let's look at verses eight and nine. What does it say? What does this beautiful metaphor, this poetic imagery say that Jesus did at creation? It says, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I what? When I made the clouds the ocean's garment or thick darkness the swaddling band. Do you see that the God of creation swaddled the sea in darkness and in clouds? Isn't that pretty incredible? Because come back to Luke chapter 2. Come back to Luke chapter 2. Look at verse 7. What happened? What happened? It's this. It's this. The God of creation who swaddled the seas at creation in order to tame them is the God who came to be swaddled himself by a poor teenage girl from the wrong side of the tracks and lived herself under the dark stormy clouds of being considered a loose woman. Why? Because she was a virgin and somehow had a baby in her. Is this humility? Yes, this is humility. The God of creation is lying right there in the manger and he did it for you. Friends, why did he do this? He did this. He came to earth so that he could one day go to the cross and remove the dark, stormy clouds of God's wrath over our sin, God's judgment over our sin, to achieve and accomplish our forgiveness. The God of creation is a God you can come to. But that's not all. We've got another one to explore. There's another passage in the Old Testament that really makes Jesus' majesty pop. You see, he's not just the true king of Israel. He's not just the God over all creation. No, he is the God who reigns over heaven and earth. Go with me. You can just look up on the screen. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. How many of you know this passage? Yeah, this is probably my favorite passage in the Old Testament, right? It says in Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I, I being Isaiah, saw the Lord. Where is the Lord sitting? On a throne. Yes, court is in session. There is a throne. There is majesty. There is king. There is royalty. But when the king sat on his throne, that meant court was in session and the king is ruling. He's rendering judgment. Well, what else? He's high and lifted up. He's over everyone else. There's majesty. The train of his robe filled the temple. What is a train? What is a train? We don't really interact with trains much anymore, do we? We, um, we might come close to them at a weddings, like brides. How many of you had a train that flowed down the aisle as you walked forward, right? That's what we understand it. But in Isaiah's day, you would have heard train and you would have instinctively have gone to a king and his robe. You see, the length of a king's train that trailed behind his robe was a sign of his power. The longer the robe, the longer the expanse, the reach of his kingdom, the larger his kingdom. How big is God's kingdom? How big is his train? 
What does it fill? It fills the temple. Isaiah cannot step into the temple without stepping on a symbol of God's power. This is a big king. This is a powerful king. This is a king who rules and rules over all. And look who's serving him. Look who's serving him. In verse 2, angels called seraphim. Seraphim. What is that? It's an angel. If you translate that word literally from the Hebrew, it's fiery snake. All I can think of is they shine so white and brilliantly and brightly. It's like a big lightning bug moving through the sky, and you can see it trailing around, and that's where they get fiery snake from. That's just my interpretation. You don't have to agree with it, but here's the thing. That's impressive. That's impressive, right? Like when we met Mary and an angel visited her, what did she do? She was afraid. When we met Zechariah, an angel shows up, right? What happened? The angel has to keep saying, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. Why are these humans so afraid, right? It's your impressive presence, dude, right? And then look at them, look at them. They have six wings, and yet they have to take two of those wings and cover their faces, cover their eyes. Why? God's glory is so much more brilliant dazzling, impressive, and intense than the angels that they have to cover their faces. Is this a picture of majesty and royalty? And look at what they say. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth, all of it is filled with his glory. His reign is over all of the earth. His reign is over all of heaven. And when he speaks, look look at his voice. The foundations of the doors, the thresholds, shook at the voice of him who called, and his voice sparks smoke. Is this a big God, y'all? Like, why are we doing a lot? Is this like a sermon on Isaiah 6 now? No, 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 no. Why are we doing so much legwork here? Why? Well, bookmark it. This is the God who reigns over heaven and earth, and bookmark that. Now go with me, right? Like, hold it, hold it, hold it. Go to John chapter 12. Let's look at who John says that was seated on the throne. John chapter 12, we've got it up there for you. In verse 36, John's talking about who? Jesus, yes, yeah, everybody say Jesus. Jesus, he's talking about Jesus. So anytime you hear he or him, the answer is Jesus, right? When Jesus had said these things, Jesus departed and hid Jesus from them. Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they they still did not believe in Jesus. Why? So that the word spoken by which prophet? Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he goes on and he quotes Isaiah 53. And then he goes on and he quotes, guess which chapter of Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 6. Please go home and read it. But look at verse 41. This should make your eyes pop. Isaiah said these things. He prophesied these things because Isaiah saw whose glory? Jesus' glory and spoke of Jesus. Do you see that that is Jesus in Isaiah 6? Like, that's mind-boggling, right? Now let's go back to Luke chapter 2, verse 7. The God who reigns over heaven and earth is lying in the manger. Right? Like Isaiah's God, who sat on the throne, is now lying in the manger, and he does that for you. Isaiah's God, who had a train so big it filled the entire temple as a sign of God's power, can't even find room in an inn. But he did that for you. 
Isaiah's God, whose voice shook the temple down to its core, now lets out a lowly infant's cry. He did that for you. Is this humility? Oh, yes, this is humility. The King of Israel, the God over all creation, the God who reigns over heaven and earth, is a God, a King, a Messiah you can come to. Grace is that good news. Anytime I see who Jesus is, anytime I see his majesty, and I reflect on that, and I think that is the baby lying in the manger, do you see his love? Do you see his grace? Do you see how for you God is? That is a game changer right there. This is a God you can come to. But what is this humility? What does this humility mean? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? Let's ask the question, what does God's humility, what does the Messiah's humility mean? I just want to explore two answers. Two answers, and we'll close with these. First, it means that Jesus is other-centered, not self-centered. He's other-centered, not self-centered, right? Like when you think about God, when you think about a king, you think about the attention flowing towards them, revolving around them, and in passages like Isaiah 6, that's certainly true, but that's not the whole story with Jesus, You see, as we see Jesus, this humble baby in the manger, as we see him grow into full adulthood, how does that humility manifest itself? He's constantly elevating the lives of other people. He's constantly raising them to new heights. He's healing them. He's feeding them. He's teaching them. He's spending time with them. Do you see how other-centered he is? When you see how other-centered our Savior is, It makes you humble. It helps you. It helps me to get off of myself, right? To live out Philippians chapter two, verses three and four, which says, do nothing in vain conceit, but in humility, or excuse me, do nothing in vain conceit, but look to the interests of others. And in humility, regard others as higher than yourselves. Oh, friends, How should we argue in the church? We should argue like this. Hey, this person, I don't really like the hymns, but they like the hymns. They connect with, I see this person kind of shed a tear when we play the hymns. Can we play more hymns? I want them to connect with Jesus. And this person should be over here going, no, 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 no. They turn into a snotty, sobby machine when we play those more contemporary sounding songs. Can we have more of those? I want this person. I care about this person. I want this person to connect with Jesus. Right? Like that should be how we argue, right? Not over all the other things that churches can argue about, right? It makes us other-centered. What would happen if husbands and wives insisted not on what they get, but on what their spouse gets? And yes, (laughs) I feel convicted right now. I'm guilty of that too, right? How would our parenting change if we're other-centered? Men, let me lean into you. When you have worked to the bone and you're dog-tired, I have those days too. Yes, pastors work on more than Sundays, all right? When we are dog-tired, we are still 
other-centered when we cross that threshold and enter into the house and contribute in our role in making it a home. Amen? We are other-centered when we see Jesus's other-centeredness. But that's not all. That's not all. We see that Jesus is other-centered. He's not self-centered. What else is he? He's approachable. He's not aloof. He's approachable. He's not aloof. There is an amazing quote from an old British pastor, one of the most famous preachers of all time. Some of you have heard of him, Charles Spurgeon. Yes, what does Spurgeon say? He says this. He says, you may tremble to come before a throne, but you would never tremble to come before a manger. Jesus Christ is the most approachable being who ever lived. Let me ask you, are you here today and are you in the chains and bondage of temper, of impatience, of lust, of materialism, alcoholism, addicted to drugs? Are you here today and you struggle with self-control over your finances or over your speech or over other aspects of life? Are you here today and you're in deep pain that you didn't cause? but something or someone has done against you. Are you here today and you're thinking, as you look at these other people to your left and your right, are you thinking, I'm from the wrong financial side of the tracks. I'm wrong, I'm from the wrong social side of the tracks. I'm from the wrong racial side of the tracks. Here is the thing, Jesus just bids you come. Never has there been a more approachable person, a more approachable king, and he is an approachable God. Come to him. All he says is identify your burden, identify where you labor in this life to make it happen, own it, bring it to me, give it to me, and I will take it in this Christmas. I will give you a new life in return. Oh, friends, Jesus is so humble he is so approachable. In fact, as we read the Gospels, what should be the most dominant thing we learn about Jesus? Here's a quote from Pastor Dane Ortland. His new best-selling book, Gentle and Lowly, is amazing. We've got free copies. We can give you one. Here's what he says. He says, the most dominant note ringing in our ears after reading the Gospels is the way the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it, yet truly desire it. Time and again, it is the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable and undeserving who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Christ naturally gravitates. Did you catch that? He doesn't just go to him. That's who he naturally moves to. Why? Jesus really is the friend of sinners. Amen. That is such good news. So what do we do in light of this? How do we live? Let's be humble people, Grace Church. Let's keep approaching the unapproachable, the way we did at Christmas to remember, the way we did in Merrillville with that adoption and foster care center. Let's love the unlovable. Why? because the Messiah came in power and in humility to save you and me when we were the unapproachable, when we were the unlovable, when we were stained in our sins, standing before God, and he used his power to heal us, and in humility, 
he came to us. Does that sound good, Grace Church? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, thank you for your son. Thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for all that he is, for all that he represents, for all that he has done. Father, may we live to be more like him. May we rest confident and secure that his power, your power, it is in our corner. It's there working on our behalf, even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel like it. May we also see his humility. And may we, may we yearn to come to him all the more. But may we also yearn to go to others in that same humility and see them come to meet him. Humble and powerful, a God others can come to. We ask this in Jesus' name. We ask it for our good, and we ask it for your glory. And all God's people say, amen. Oh, 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 oh,